Amen. I invite you now to take a Bible and to turn with me to Psalm 22. As we laid out this series in the Psalms, going through the Psalms one Sunday at a time, there was no direct plan or awareness on our part that Psalm 22 would line up on a Sunday where we would celebrate communion, but it's hard to imagine a more appropriate psalm uh, in reflecting upon the sacrifice of our Lord to look at the very psalm that while he was suffering for us, uh, that he drew from in its words and in its prayers, its expression uh, to his uh, Father. If you're using a Bible provided there in the pew, this is on page 427. Uh, This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when we cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. 
Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That will conclude the reading of our psalm for today. Uh, we've, we've read up to this point many psalms that are psalms of lament where the psalmist is crying out and grieving over a certain situation and circumstance that the psalmist is walking through. And sometimes we have an indication of what's causing that suffering or that pain in the psalmist's life. Uh, there's either a note that precedes the psalm, or as we read the psalm, we get this indication of maybe what's happening in that person's life. And one of the differences here in this psalm is that this is much less about what causes suffering or what the circumstances are immediately in, this, in David's life. And it's much more about how suffering has begun to affect him. So it's much less about what's caused the suffering and more a description of what suffering is causing in his own heart and life. And there's a grace immediately in that in that we don't know the immediate circumstances of, of what caused this to transpire so that none of us, if we knew the exact details, could then be able to say, well, I don't know what that's like or I've never gone through that specific situation. Um, there are many different roads that we could take to end up in this destination. And it's different for each of us. But there's a general principle that what the psalmist is describing is, is just generally suffering in life. And at times, it's important to think about what causes it and how we ended up where we ended up. And the, the goal is not to dismiss the importance of that at times. But it's also to recognize, however we got here, whatever it was that got us to the point of really profound and deep hurt and pain, if we feel like we're facing in the darkness and we're walking in the darkness, it's appropriate for us to also recognize that darkness affects us. Whether we feel like we got here justly or unjustly, whether we were surprised by this or we had a sense that it was coming. Irrespective of those concerns, when we're in it, there's a way in which it affects us as human beings. We all go through suffering in life and we need to become wise in how suffering itself affects us, how it shapes the way we think and act and respond to situations. And part of what this psalmist is recognizing is in a, in a normal flow of activities, we might have sort of highlights and lowlights. We might have good moments that we can celebrate and rejoice in and things that happen that grieve us and make us sad. And it kind of goes back and forth throughout the course of a day and throughout the course of a, of a week or a season. But there are also times in all of our lives when we go through something that is so profound that we're not sad for the moment or the occasion, but sadness is now permeating everything. 
where we're just hurting. And in our hurting, it's affecting our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our relationships with other people, our, our, our perception of how things are going in the world. So we all go through ups and downs, but it's also true that there are times when the depth of the suffering can reach a point for any one of us where now that suffering is affecting everything about us. And so the psalmist does uh, quite powerfully and poetically a profound description of all the ways in which he's being affected, that it's affecting his mind and his heart. Uh, Verse 14, he says, I'm poured out like water. Uh, All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue, it sticks to my jaws. All of those are different descriptions, fairly profound of the human personality and all the ways in which we're made and all the various systems that make up our personality and how each and every one of them is affected. Uh, that this, this title we've given to this series in the Psalms is, uh, comes from Jesus' summation of the law, to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And here we're getting a picture of what it looks like to feel a sense of suffering and sadness in our heart, soul, and mind, and body. That because all of those things are connected, uh, they, they, they all are affected by the other And so we don't know if this started primarily physically and then increasingly had spiritual and emotional implications or if this started emotionally and spiritually and then increasingly had physical implications, we don't know. But the reality is there's multiple ways to get here. And and part of my own, uh, so I knew that for the past three weeks uh, before this that I would not be preaching. And so I was like, oh, I can get ahead and actually give a lot of thought to a message. That's nice at times because sometimes there's sort of the weekly rhythm of just moving on to the next thing and moving on to the next thing. And so when I knew that uh, Brad would be preaching and then Mark and then Scott, I was like, oh, I can spend like an extra long time with the passage. And then it was this passage. And I said to Mark after the Wednesday morning Bible study, I was like, I need to get out of Psalm 22. Like, this is affecting me. Because even in reading it, for me, there's not an immediate circumstance in my direct family or my own physical health that is drawing out these feelings. But in in wanting to sort of enter into the emotion of this psalm, to say, what are the types of things that have come up in my life, or what are the other things that when I read the headline, that it just stops you. And it grips you. And so part of my spending more time in Psalm 22 is spending more time reading those kinds of stories or reflecting upon those kinds of experience at previous times in my own life. Where again, the sadness was not occasional or in response to one thing. But when something so sad transpired, that it just affects everything. And we all go through that. But whether, again, that starts physical and begins to affect us emotionally and spiritually, or whether it starts emotionally and spiritually and begins to affect us physically, 
This is part of the reality of our human condition, that we all suffer at times, and that in the course of time, all of us suffer in really deep and profound ways, where it feels like it affects everything else. And then I submit to you also as we read this psalm, um, he's not only describing suffering in life that happens for each and every one of us, but this is someone who is suffering in faith. Um, the psalmist has a relationship with God. And, and part of the suffering is coming from the fact that David knows the Lord well. So it's not a suffering that's being born out of ignorance or a suffering that's even being born out of an unbelief, which can happen at times. We can suffer because we just don't understand what's going on or we're ignorant of things. But the very fact that this psalm opens <clears throat> with the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, what the psalmist is crying out is, I know you. <clears throat> I know who you are. And then he goes to recount, not only in his own life, but in Israel's history, you are the one who's enthroned in the praises of Israel. You're the one who has heard and responded to the cries of our people. And then later he goes on to describe his own experience. Like basically from the moment I was born, I've been surrounded by people who have taught me about you. And you have been my God from the, the, the immediacy of my life. And so when we're reading Psalm 22, we're not reading someone who does not know God or who does not have faith in God, but actually someone who profoundly has that faith, intimately for years and for decades has been walking with God. And there's a time at which we have to recognize not only do we suffer in life, but there's also a unique suffering that comes to us and in our hearts and minds because we're people of faith. Not in spite of it, but because of it. Because when we wrestle with those questions of why did this happen and why did this, have to, this person have to go through it, if we have no faith at all and don't believe there's a God out there, we still will go through profound suffering. But it is a different level of grief and sadness in our own heart to say, Jesus, I do believe you can work miracles. I do believe you're powerful. And so I don't understand why you didn't do that here. I don't understand why in this instance there was joy in the celebration of answered prayer that this situation turned out the way it did. But now here we are in this situation and we're not celebrating the same way. It didn't end the same way. And we don't have an answer for it. And it's actually because we believe in God that there's even a deeper level of our own sense of sadness or grief, wondering, God, where are you in the midst of this? And it's appropriate for us to be able to say that, to say that out loud to God and to say that out loud to one another. From everything I know about Jesus and that I specifically believe about him, there are then things that happen in this world that make absolutely no sense to me. Because I believe him when he said that if anybody offends a little one and causes them to sin, that 
They're going to have to stand before him one day. And he, in a culture in his day when people dismissed kids and didn't care about them and mistreated them, and he wanted to say, listen, I care about kids. I care about how they're treated. And you're going to deal with me one day, in judgment day. And so you better care about how you treat little ones. And I believe that that reflects his heart and who he is, that then it causes me to grieve when children suffer. That's, that's an example of that. It's not because I don't believe in him, it's because I believe him and I believe the words he said, that it, it truly uh, is a profound struggle. And all of us can think of different things where sometimes we might say, oh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I shouldn't say this or I shouldn't bring this up, but it's one of those, but we all have some of that running through our, our minds and in our hearts. And if we feel like we can never bring it up or never ask the question and that the only option is to sort of suppress that, uh, it'll lead to handling those kinds of uh, things in unhealthy ways rather than in finding healthy ways to do them. And so here in Psalm 22, we have an example of somebody who is suffering in faith. This is someone who loves God. This is someone who believes God's word is true and that what God says about the world is true. And so there's this, this acknowledgement that things don't make sense. Not only do they not make sense, but then one of the ways the psalmist is describing this is to say, because I know who you are and I know what I'm going through, what that then feels like is that you, God, are really far away. It feels like you're gone or not paying attention at what's happening. And so the cry is, God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Eugene Peterson has a paraphrase of this psalm in the message that he, he talks about, God, you've moved far away and trouble has moved right next door. That, that, that's what it feels like. That I can't get a hold of you, but who I don't want to get a hold of, I can't get away from. And just to acknowledge that there's at times that we feel that forsakenness because we believe that his presence would provide a sense of peace that we are not right now experiencing. And the order of things matters, right? We know that there's a scary world. We know that bad things happen, but if we have the sense that there's us, and then there's God, and then there's all the bad things. We have a sense of a shield in front of us. We have a sense of protection. But when we feel like God's way out there, and there's something in between us and God, that we feel profoundly vulnerable. We're reminded again that to be human is to be vulnerable. Uh, last, not this past week, but the week before, our family uh, was on vacation in Hilton Head, and it's a place we've gone to uh, many times before, but we had a new experience this time, where uh, there were jellyfish everywhere, washed up onto the shore and then in the water. And we couldn't like hide it at all. Like the moment we got to the beach, you just saw a few of them scattered on the, on the shore. And so then we were wondering, oh no, you know, how many of them are in the water? And so uh, already you're a little bit on edge when you, know, you have little kids in the ocean, but then all the more for us, it was a question of, okay, <laughs> We need to pay attention to this, but we had just gotten there. We're hoping to be there now for six or seven days and to enjoy it. And so we said, how are we going to do this? So my job for a week was to stand in the water and do almost nothing related to the enjoyment of the water. 
but it was my job to be the person between the jellyfish and my kids. And so which way is the current coming? And we played this sort of frogger game, like with the jellyfish. Like I pointed out, we move here. Because second day, somebody had told us, you know, these aren't the ones that sting. The ones that sting don't come till July. And I was like, thanks. But do you think I care to find out if that's true or not? I'd rather, I'd rather not know that. I'd rather find a way to put myself in front of it with them. And we were able to enjoy the water every day, and nobody encountered one uh, in a way that they were surprised or didn't want to. But it was just that sense of, it's okay to believe they're out there. Like, we know that, right? They're not on our territory. We're in their territory. There's sharks out there. There's all kinds of stuff. But it feels different if it feels like there's something, a barrier between us, than when it feels like, oh no, there's not something between us. Uh, in, a, again, a lighthearted way, this matters even when it comes to the order in which we put words uh, for understanding. We were getting ready for church this morning, and uh, our middle son, who's eight years old, said, uh, I've got my wedding clothes upstairs. And I was like, your wedding clothes? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, are you getting married today? He goes, no, no, no. He meant we were at a wedding two weeks ago, and so he's going to wear the same outfit that he wore for that wedding at church today. And I was like, word order matters here. They're your clothes that you wore at a wedding. They're not your wedding clothes, right? Um, one day there might be your wedding clothes, but that's not what these are. Um, and so we can know, even as believers in our minds, that the world is broken, that scary and terrible things happen. But our general sense is that in faith, we do have a shield and a protection. Part of what the psalmist is wrestling with, though, is there's also times when it feels like the order has switched. God is out there, and there's something in front of us. There's something between us. And whatever is the thing that's closer to us is the thing that then uh, enlivens all of our senses. That's what we see. That's what we feel. That's what we hear. To know that there's something good happening way out there or somebody good way out there doesn't change the fact that uh, the way we're wired and designed and created as creatures is that we experience the world in concentric circles. And so whatever's closest to us is usually what has our attention. And so the psalmist is just acknowledging that though he has faith, it is that like God is way out there and something else is much closer. And so the psalmist is being completely honest in faith not in doubt, but in faith, saying, I, I need your help because this thing is much closer uh, than what it feels like at the time is the presence of his God, who he knows has saved people in the past. So he can look on that historically in the nation of Israel. He can look on his own past and say, you've been with me since a child. But right now, it feels like the order's been blown up, You're, that, that God is the one who's much further off. And all, that, all the dangers and toils and snares are the things that are much closer. And so this is a suffering that happens in faith, not in spite of faith. And so that is helpful for us to remember, crying out to God is not the same thing as cursing God. Crying out to God is not the same thing as cursing God. This, the psalmist is suffering faith in a God, I want you closer to me. What's going on is that I don't feel you. I don't know where you are, but I want you. 
versus somebody being close to you, but you get mad enough that you say, I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you again. That's sort of speaking a curse over something. I hope, I hope you never, uh, whatever you would want to say. That's not what the psalmist is expressing in Psalm 22. He's not saying, God, I'm so mad about everything I'm going through, I want nothing to do with you anymore. What he's saying is, I don't want this, I want you. Can you come? Can you be near? And that's him showing what it's like to suffer in faith. I think the next thing we see is that there is this, uh, the psalmist is also suffering in hope. This is an example where if we only read the first part of the psalm, we wouldn't kind of expect it to end the way that it ends. And if we were only to read the last few verses of the psalm, we wouldn't have expected it to begin where it began. (laughs) Uh, There's such a positivity in the last few verses about the fact that God has drawn near, that God has heard the cries of the people, and oh, that all the world would join in praise and worship. Like if you only read the last few verses, you would not expect that the psalm began as it did. But part of, I think, what, the, what David is doing in his suffering is he is manifesting a sense of hope, even in his grief, even in his sadness, that part of what he's acknowledging is that he's at the end of himself, that this suffering that he's going through has so permeated everything about him that he knows he's not going to save himself. He's just drained. He's exhausted. He's depleted physically, mentally, and emotionally. Uh, Vividly, when he describes being poured out like water, all of his points out of joint, then he goes on to say that you lay me down in the dust of death. In other words, he feels so close to being done. And what he feels is also what other people around him are saying. When he talks about uh, the dogs coming to encompass him, uh, we think of dogs now as sort of man's best friend. Uh, But dogs in ancient times was like, no, it's the equivalent of you going out and driving on the road and seeing a bunch of birds in the sky starting to hover and you're saying, I think something's about to die or something's already dead. And that's why those birds are circling. And so his sense that the dogs are encompassing is that what he's feeling internally, other people around him are sort of, they're getting ready for the reality that he's almost gone. And in that state, suffering in that way, his cry is not, well, I just hope I can try harder. I just hope I can do better. I just hope I can muster up my own strength to get out of this. He's acknowledging he doesn't have the strength to do that. And so he just surrenders himself that the hope has to come from outside, that he needs to be rescued. The Lord really does need to come near. And again, there's a grace in that, that if you and I were to hear in our own suffering that when we're hurting so bad that it feels like we can't even get out of bed or we can't even face the next challenge, for somebody to come to us and just say, well, you just need to try harder or you just need to read your Bible more or you need to pray more, whatever it is, you're like, I don't feel like I can do anything right now. That's how bad I'm hurting. So for you just to give me a list of 10 more things I need to do is not really that helpful. Can you tell me about anyone who could help me? Anyone outside of me, anybody who has strength that's more than mine or knowledge that's more than mine, 
that can be my rescuer, that can be my redeemer. And actually, for most of us, the sooner we realize our own limitation, actually the better. The sooner we can recognize the darkness really does affect us. The sadness can really change everything about us. And that hope is found the sooner we acknowledge that. The sooner we hit a sense of rock bottom instead of trying with whatever exhausted resources we have to just keep on going. Um, there's hope in that surrender. When you, when you can just tell the tank is getting closer and closer to empty. <laughs> that was our experience now uh, driving home. I, I thought I knew in our now uh, minivan like how much further can I go on a quarter tank? Uh, but you kind of learn, you know, with each car, like what does that really mean? What's a quarter mean? What's an eighth mean? And, and so I knew we were getting lower and lower, but we're trying to complete a 12-hour road trip home. And so it's also like, I want to maximize every stop. So at the stop, do we get gas? Do people use the bathroom? Do what? And I'm in this dilemma of where, oh no, we're getting really, really low. And now I don't know if we're in an area of how quickly I'm going to be able to get off to a gas station. <laughs> But it's that realization of, I need something else. What I have is not going to be enough to get me all the way home. I need to be able to plug into something else or get fuel from somewhere else to do it. That's true of you and me. We need to be regularly refreshed or recharged from help outside of ourselves in order to be able to handle the challenges that life brings to us. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the more likely then we can be restored rather than completely drained and on the side of the road. Um, and then lastly, I think the psalmist is, is demonstrating to us that he is suffering in love. And here is actually where I draw to the New Testament. So I invite you as we close to uh, come with me to Matthew chapter 27. Because it's so profound that this that David's psalm would become uh, the very psalm that Jesus would incorporate in his darkest hour. So we don't have time to go through it in detail. But we'll go to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll pick it up in verse 27. It says, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out and they found uh, of Cyrene, Simon by name, they compelled him to carry the cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down to keep watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. For the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put on it a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's so much of this psalm that we then see in these final moments of Jesus' life that as the psalmist was grieving that other people were making fun of him and mocking him and saying, where's your God if, if you're going through all this suffering? Why would God allow all this suffering to happen on you? That those very charges were laid against Jesus. But we also see in creation itself a sense of grieving that what we believe was the grief of the father's own heart over the suffering of his son was exhibited in the darkness over the earth for a three-hour period of time. That this wasn't like his baptism when the heavens opened up and a, a dove descended and this loud voice said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That the silence of God in this moment of the father was a way in which the father was acknowledging, don't think the father's mocking his son. Don't think there's anything about the blasphemous words that are being uh, poured out on his son that, that, that he's okay with in that sense. That he is a good God. This is his beloved son. And so there is sorrow. There is grief. There is sadness that not only affected Jesus in a way that it says his soul was troubled, but that creation joined in, in the darkness and the silence that was experienced. But scripture tells us he was willing to enter into this suffering out of love for you and me, and he was willing to enter into it even out of love for his father. And we know that for Jesus, this suffering was suffering that he did in faith, and it was suffering that he did in hope. Because after he cried out that cry, and when others were uh, wondering, is he going to call down help to come down from the cross? Uh, it's in John's recording of it that Jesus cries out again to yield up his spirit. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my, my spirit. And so he experienced the forsakenness, the darkness, the pain. But he also experienced that in faith and hope and ultimately in love that that was not going to be how it ended for him or for you and for me. That there was a father that he could still, though at a time feeling forsaken from, that he could again experience the embrace of. That he could rest in. And that's the good news that you and I need as well.
we can be completely honest about the cries of our heart, the questions that even our own faith brings us about why things happen and why we go through things. But we can also find ways to suffer deeply with faith and hope, knowing that ultimately we'll rest in the loving arms of our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and um, we know that these are, are, are heavy things. It is hard to face the darkness. It is hard to go through things ourselves. It's hard to, at some times, even feels harder to watch other people go through things that don't make sense to us. And we don't want to give simplistic responses to that. We don't want to rush and hurry and move on from it. We don't want to suppress it and belittle it. We thank you for the gift of your word that allows us to be um, fully transparent and honest about all the different ways that it's possible for us to hurt and believing that you know that, that you understand that, that you care about our grief and our sorrows. And so we pray that you would give us that, that gift of, of both time and ability to cry out day and night, to acknowledge when we are at the end of ourselves that we don't have to just try harder or pretend to be better than we are, but that we can surrender to you. We can ask you to do the things that only you can do and, and be okay with the limitations that we have in our own minds and bodies, with our own limited time. So, Father, we need the grace of your Holy Spirit to be able to do that well. And we thank you that you've provided the Holy Spirit so that we would not feel alone in things. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would be a comfort to each and every one of us and a guide to give us strength that is not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.